Welcome to Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Find stories, artworks, past episodes, and more at artuk.org. If you're the social type, you can find me on Twitter at Farron Gibson and find Art UK at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. This episode is all about fairy tales and art, and as your narrator, you could say I'm taking a little inspiration from Shahirzad today. She was the cunning storyteller from Arabian Nights who used her ability to weave captivating tales as a means of extending her life. She was married to the Sultan, who decided that he would take a new bride each night and have them executed the next day as a retribution for a wife that betrayed him in the past. Each night for 1001 Nights, Shahirzad told a new story, always leaving a cliffhanger so that the Sultan would keep her alive until the following evening. Eventually, he fell in love with his bride and spared her life. Within her stories known originally as 1001 Nights, we get the tales of Aladdin, Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, Sinbad, and more. Victorian painter Sophie Anderson created a portrait of Shahirzad that shows her adorned in precious heavy fabrics and gold jewelry. Her expression is serene and measured, like a woman that's in control. It's quite the contrast from some of the other imagery of the same period by male artists that shows figures like Sleeping Beauty in a deep slumber and waiting for her prince to save her. We've discussed in past episodes that the Victorian period is a time in which we see more attention on children in society, so it seems fitting that during this period, fairy tales begin to increase in popularity. I mean, a number of things happened in the Victorian period that hadn't happened before. One is there's a kind of huge, I guess, flowering of fairy painting. That's Dr. Michael Newton, lecturer at Leiden University and author of the book Victorian Fairy Tales. It sort of begins in the Romantic period, people like uh, Fuseli, who starts uh, painting pictures of Midsummer Night's Dream. But in the Victorian period, it really just explodes as a genre and it becomes something that you know, a lot of people are doing. So there's this, there's this huge visual impact with regards to the image of, of fairy tales and of fairies. In a similar way, one thing that happens also in the period that's of great interest to me is that the Victorian fairy tale book was very often just highly beautiful. They were art books. Quite often the illustrator got a sort of uh, more substantial credit than the author of those uh, stories. And the illustrations and drawings are just fantastic. There's this kind of great flourishing of fairy tale illustration. Examples of the beauty of these book illustrations can be seen in the work of John Dixon Batten. Batten was a painter who did illustrations for editions of Celtic and English fairy tales, tales from the Arabian Nights, and more. These themes carried over into his painting, and he created pieces based on stories including Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. In his exceptionally detailed painting of Beauty and the Beast, he slightly hilariously shows our heroine facing off with the beast, represented by a sloth. Though the stories increased in popularity in the 19th century, these elaborate illustrations didn't begin with the Victorians. Some of the key texts are um, 17th century texts, Charles Perrault and Madame de Beaumont and so on, who did the original Beauty and the Beast. But the big kind of fructifying, inspiring seminal text um, or texts are the Grimm's fairy tales, which get published in Britain in the 1820s, and then the 1840s Hans Andersen's tales. I guess it then filters into the nursery. Suddenly children are brought up on those stories in the 19th century. 
through the literary versions um, and revisions and reworkings of Graham and Anderson and of the earlier writers. So that kind of, in the sense of the, the Victorian period, is still a romantic period. Um, that's one reason why it's so important. Michael briefly mentions fairy painting. Fairy paintings are simply a painting genre that features fairies or conveys fairy tale stories. It's a subject matter that seems geared towards children, yet attracted so many adult writers and artists. Who is the intended audience for these works? Oscar Wilde did a book of fairy stories called um, The House of Pomegranates. And reviewers looked at the book and they said, you know, can this really be for children? It costs uh, quite a lot of money, probably the equivalent of like a £80 in today's money. The illustrations were very lavish. It, was, it looked like an art book, it looked like a sort of um, a coffee table book. And the style and writing was very decadent and highly symbolist and ornate and over the top. And people worried about it. There is a sense that fairy tales are for children in the period, but very often they're for adults too. And the kind of party line on it, the thing that the writers themselves often say, is that the stories are addressed to the childlike, to that element in the adult that is like a child. Mm. So in that sense, there's a kind of dual audience. The writer Neil Gaiman, who's a great fantasy writer, I'm sure all your listeners will know him, has said that one thing that's kind of interesting about fairy stories is how, is how literary and literate they are, how they play with the genre. So children read them in quite sophisticated ways and hear them in sophisticated ways. Yet at the same time, adults can read them and then it's imagined that they're reading them in quite naive ways and imaginative ways and simple ways that are associated with, with childhood. The Victorian period, which is a very large period of time, uh, but it's, yeah. it's often uh, linked with ideas around morality and things like that. Is, is there an element of that to the fairy tales? Because they often have a kind of moral to it. Well, yes and no. One thing that happened in the early 19th century is there was a bit of a reaction against fairy stories. A number of writers on the evangelical side of things uh, started to see them as both kind of worryingly violent, they were too scary, and they were not moral enough. And there was a belief in that time that uh, children should not be given fairy stories because the world that they presented um, was weirdly and almost sinisterly amoral. People who wanted to defend fairy stories in the 19th century, one thing they often say is, yes, these stories are moral, but they're ruined when they're moralistic. Charles Dickens uh, wrote this great essay in the mid-19th century called um, Fraud on the Fairies. The book of fairy stories to come out with a kind of temperance message. They were fairy stories directed moralistically against uh, drinking too much. And Dickens said, you know, this is ridiculous. Um, it's in the nature of these stories that they leave a space open for the imagination. And as soon as it becomes too didactic or too controlling, um, the meaning is predetermined and single and definite, then they're wrecked. Dickens was very clear, and other writers in the period were equally clear. There had to be something in the fairy story that floated free of the moral, that uh, is inhabiting a world of fancy and imagination that can't be pinned down in a moralistic way. So although they had that tradition, going back to Charles Perrault, who at the end of each of his little fairy tales gives a moral at the end of the story, they wanted to resist moral element in them. There's also an intriguing duality to fairy tales, where they tell a story on two levels. Do you ever catch an adult joke in a Disney film and think, there's no way kids understood that? And the original versions of Grimm's fairy tales are downright dark. They are weird. <laughs> 
there's something peculiarly violent about them or grotesque. Um, and I think that element of the amoral or the or the imaginative, uh, these kind of these fugitive realms that they call up, people are really troubled by it. And a lot of the stories um, uh, in their origins pretty violent. Kind of uh, people put in red hot boots or toes cut mm. off. And it's interesting how versions from the early 19th century right up to today. I, I have two small children that I read fairy tales to, and it's rare for those stories in the sanitized versions, the modern versions that, that I give to them, to include that violent element. There's another adult angle to the imagery that may account for the draw of the subject for some other artists. And I think one, one thing you can really see in Victorian fairy painting is that it was a site for erotic desire. They are highly sexualized paintings. As sleeping figures, they're kind of eroticized and uh, fantasized. Their cheeks are flushed. Um, you can look at them because they're asleep. There's almost a kind of Hitchcockian, you know, uh, voyeurism in these paintings. So often uh, nude in the period. Uh, it's, it's like a little place for Victorian painters, I guess particularly male painters, to place sexual desire. And the fairy is sort of, in that sense, a kind of liminal figure. They, they're not respectable or conventional like, you know, kind of uh, men and women in society. They're on the edge of things. Because they're on the edge of things, um, they become more open to the sexual longings and desires and to fantasies. Let's look at a few artists and some of the themes we see in their work. There's this guy called John Anster Fitzgerald, who's a kind of mid-19th century fairy painter. And he paints a series of paintings of women asleep and dreaming. And in fact, it's one sort of little sub-genre in Victorian fairy painting. This, this idea or this interest in, um, in dreams, and in, I think in particular in, in a sleeping or dreaming woman. The obvious tale to draw on here is Sleeping Beauty. There are several examples of this story in paintings, but a series by Leon Bax in the National Trust Collection is especially stunning. Rather than just creating one scene of a slumbering princess, he drew on his skills as a stage designer to paint seven tableaus. Each oil painting is as rich in detail as a book illustration carried out in pen and ink. So aside from the potential erotic element of showing a sleeping woman, what was the draw of this subject? They really want to visualize the dreamt. Um, I think this goes in also into kind of film versions of fairy stories in the, in the 20th century, in particular uh, Jean Cocteau, uh, La Belle et les Bêtes, and so on, where the fairy tale is a space for dreaming. And one thing you want to do when you paint a fairy picture or when you make a fairy film is to open up that uh, medium to that which is kind of elusive, to that which is, you know, fugitive and reckless and wild uh, and not linear, not coherent. Victorian fairy paintings kind of, as an image, often they're a complete mess. It's sort of, you know, the canvas is completely covered with stuff. Mm, yes, especially at some of the Pre-Raphaelite examples. Absolutely, yeah. Another popular source of sleepy inspiration for paintings was Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. There's other painter from the kind of Victorian painter called uh, Joseph Noel Patton. And again, he's, he's this very famous painting of uh, Titania sleeping. Uh, you know, that play by Shakespeare, Miss of a Night's Dream, was absolutely key to, you know, 19th century ideas about fairy tales and fairy paintings and fairies as such. 
One attribute of fairy paintings we've touched on is the high level of detail. It's remarkable, really, when you think that what the artists are representing comes largely from their imaginations. There's this wonderful Victorian fairy painter called Richard Dadd, who went insane when killed his father, was then spent the rest of his life incarcerated in an asylum, where he carried on painting. He did this amazing painting called The Fairy Feller's Masterstroke. And you can see in it this sort of absolutely uh, intense and obsessive interest in details, where there's no centre to the painting. The image is completely diffused and dispersed and it's not even clear where the master stroke is happening. You know, it's kind of happen- it's happening off-centre. And everywhere there's, there are these odd, rather spooky and sinister, uncanny figures, these little strange elves and gnomes. And I think that, that is a kind of strong interest in how it worked visually in the 19th century. It's a space to, to fantasise things. And very often what they fantasise is something eclectic and mixed and varied. It's not one thing, it's a hundred things at once. It's very unlike the Disney versions, which are much cleaner and uh, more coherent. There's something in how people imagined fairies in the 19th century where it provides a space for the weird, for the you know for everything that's unheimlich and strange and untoward. Well, I suppose it reminds me a bit of... Um... I mean, it's rich for storytelling and, and content and in that way functions very similarly to mythology or religious painting in mm. that um, it's, it's a rich subject to draw upon. Absolutely. And also there are no limits with it. I guess with the history painting, you're confined, you know, there's, the element of realism is much strong, more strongly there. With fairy painting, and I think with fairy tales, uh, as they exist as a literary form, as a kind of artful literary form in the 19th century, it's a space where you're free to make things up. Fairy tales offer a way to escape normality into a world where anything is possible. This may factor into why the stories and their associated imagery became popular in the modernizing Victorian society. It's always hard to account for the popularity of something. But I think a number of things come together in the 19th century that made fairy tales seem more important and more uh, interesting than they had before. And I think one of those things uh, is there's a feeling at that time that life is becoming what we would call modern. And it, I think there's something that's felt to be counter in the fairy stories. It's counter to kind of industrialism. It's counter to modernity. It's counter to a new spirit of utilitarianism in uh, social life and philosophy, and in particular in education, that uh, the fairy tales are suddenly deemed to be kind of necessary works because they are presenting or, or offering to us something which um, we might not get otherwise. And I think that interest in the fairy tale as a place for freedom, as a place for imagination, as a place for everything that is singular and distinct and odd and grotesque. Very often the paintings involve elements of the grotesque. Those things are suddenly valued because they're not about factories. They're not about um, payment by results. They're not about uh, Jeremy Bentham or utilitarian theories. They are something beautifully, mysteriously unaccountable. The magic of fairy tales has persisted through to today, evident in the massive success of Disney and even shows like Game of Thrones. 
What is it that makes these stories as appealing to the Victorians as they are to us now? Max Weber, the German sociologist, you know, he talked about it, you know, something that he said it happened during the 19th century, the disenchantment of the world. And in the early modern period, in the medieval period and before, the world was an enchanted place. Things were sacred. You could have a, a sacred stone or a sacred river, and suddenly they're not anymore. And I think you can see in kind of 19th century fairy stories, and I think also in the 20th century version of them, from The Lord of the Rings to John Cocteau to Neil Gaiman um, to Frozen, this wild desire to, to re-enchant the world, to make it once again magical. And they're using the fairy stories, they're using this, that form and that genre, both visually and in literary ways and in, you know, in cinematic ways as a space for doing it. Please be sure to head over to the Art UK website to see the article for this episode. I've included paintings we've discussed today, as well as some other examples from Cinderella, Robin Hood, Alice in Wonderland, and many more. There are actually so many great examples on our site that I couldn't fit them all into the article, so I recommend doing a little search to see if your favorite fairy tale is represented in a national collection. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us today. It's truly our pleasure to be able to share this series with you. Be sure to tune in again next time.